0: So great to see everyone here and to the people online. Hello, um, I'm Abby. Today we'll be reading the Bible together. So today's Bible passage is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Before we begin, let me pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather together as your people today um, under your word. Lord God, I ask that you would teach us this morning from your word. Um, that you would help us to behold Christ. And I pray for um, Matt, Lord, that you would help him to preach faithfully um, from your word um, and help him give him the words to speak. And I pray that you would work by your spirit in us um, to apply what we have read, to hear and to apply. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16. Therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. Because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Keep your Bibles open as we're going to be having a look at that passage shortly. Uh, hey, look, it was great uh, actually just chatting with some people, just hearing about some of their stories. I mean, hey, quick survey. Who grew up in church and who grew up not in church at all? Yeah, great. Okay. Who's grown up and been to like lots of different churches and yeah, maybe three or more churches Who's maybe, actually, you, you're a CPE diehard, you've been here forever, yeah, a handful, yeah. Great. Hey, uh, look, I think it's a really interesting thing, having had a variety of different experiences. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about mine, uh, because I grew up in a, as a teenager, probably a little bit confused, because I had kind of all these different experiences growing up. So uh, firstly, I started off as a, as a teenager at a real charismatic church, like a sort of the big church. Um, it's got the, the lights, the, the music. It was sort of a really modern happening kind of place. But it also had this kind of hyper-spiritual side to it, right? You kind of had people, uh, they're speaking in tongues. There were uh, people who were getting slain in the spirit, which is sort of a, you know, it's kind of like people going up and falling over on stage and they'd be laughing or barking like dogs and, and kind of the whole kind of uh, thing of that. Um, and I don't know about you, but uh, it was sort of stuff that you wouldn't really expect in church, maybe, if you've been here. Uh, but uh, one of the things that you really kind of gathered from that is that The super-spiritual people are the ones who had all these kind of crazy, hyper-spiritual stuff happen to them. The ones who had the prophecies, or the visions, or the tongues, or the the things like that. Then it was really bizarre, because at the same time, I was attending a high school, which was a high Anglican school, right? And so we would attend chapel in a small quaint little church building, stained glass windows, lots of fancy looking uh, pews and altars and, and priests and robes would enter into a lot of ceremony and fanfare. So it couldn't be more different, could it? On one hand, kind of hyper-spiritual, kind of informal, spontaneous, and the other hand, very formal and organised and prim and proper. So in some ways, I think that illustrates that there's lots of different ways to approaching God. And in our passage here on Colossians today, we're going to be say, seeing that actually this isn't a new problem. In fact, Christians from the beginning have wrestled with the different ways in which we actually are to approach God. But Paul Apostle here this morning is going to make a point that not necessarily all of those are good or helpful things. In fact, there is a particular way in which he's talking about it, in which he's going to warn us away from particular ways of thinking or relating to God, and particularly in church. Now, it's a little bit like the rumble strips on the side of the highway, right? You know when you're driving along and you, like, swerve just a little bit off your lane and on the highways there's sort of little bumpy strips and your car makes that loud, vibrating sound? Today, today's passage is a bit like the rumble strips, kind of just to kind of say, hey, watch out because you may be straying off course without realising it. And the reason that you could be, you you may be able to be doing that without realising is because this week we'll be tackling not so much the worldly philosophies that might be drawing us away from Christ, but the religious philosophies, the ones that are cloaked in in lots of kind of religious and spiritual uh, veneer that might actually be drawing us away from Christ. And so Paul, uh, as a bit of a reminder, at the start of this section, he reminds us that actually it's all about sticking with Christ, right? He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Don't leave him behind. Stay with him. Stick with him. Get rooted in Christ. Or another way that he puts it in a more negative sense, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, you see, Pastor Egy last week took us through some of those worldly philosophies, and this week we, Paul's going to show us actually the religious philosophies that could take us off course. So if you're wanting to know where we're going, here's a quick outline for where we're going, saying watch out for the religious captivity, the ways in which it can draw you away. And there's three things we're going to tackle. If you don't understand what these words mean, we'll, we'll get to them. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism. But he finishes to say, but... Beware, know, know in your hearts that Christ is enough. Now, in the city of Colossae, with the early church in general, uh, there was always actually the threat of Jewish legalism. Now, the reason for that is actually fairly obvious. Uh, The church grew out from Judaism. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, after all. And so what you had was this whole clash of, well, what happens when uh, you've become Christian? And what do you do with the Jewish law and the customs that we grew up with? What do you do if you're actually, you didn't grow up in the Jewish synagogues and you've been saved by Jesus? What are you to do with all this uh, Jewish stuff? And so Paul goes on to say there in verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, the uh, Jewish ceremonial law had a lot to say about uh, what you consumed, what you eat, what you drank, what you, uh, the festivals that, of which you are to be involved with, right? So you might have gone down the uh, supermarket aisle and you might have seen the uh, kosher food section, right? Sort of a modern day uh, imagining of, of, of uh, preparing food according to the Jewish law, Jewish custom. You might be familiar with things like the Jewish ban on pork, for example. But maybe there's a few other things you didn't realize. You know that uh, under kosher food laws, you can't mix milk and meat products, okay? You've got to keep them separate. You've got to keep the utensils separate, and that's all due to a particular, very obscure little Old Testament reference about uh, boiling goat and milk, and you can look it up. It's very kind of bizarre and obscure. There's other things, like you've got to drain the blood out from meat before it's eaten. Now, not only was it about food, it was about all these festivals as well. Now, that's just a little Jewish calendar of the different festivals you could be uh, involved with that would really govern your life, sort of the same way we have Christmas or Easter But in the Jewish calendar, actually, you've got festivals all over the place. There was the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which you might know as the Passover. The Festival of Weeks, also known as Pentecost, or the Festival of the Harvest. There's a Festival of Tabernacles commemorating the escape from Egypt. And then in addition to that, you had the Shabbat. Or what you might call the Sabbath, a weekly observance of rest, which, oh, with a whole set of rules governing that. There's Rosh Kodesh, the sighting of the new moon as a celebration. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and it goes on and on and on. so I'm if you can try and imagine what it's like to be Jewish. Actually, your whole life is governed, really, by these ceremonies, by these rituals, by these festivals. Now, that's not necessarily all a bad thing. Uh, In fact, I remember, I mean, we lived in Sydney for quite a while, just near Bondi, and I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Bondi, you know, Bondi Beach, uh, Bondi is actually one of the most, biggest Jewish populations in Australia. Everywhere where you walk, there's a lot of uh, Jewish stuff around uh, in that suburb. And it was really interesting because there was always actually lots of uh, food and festivals and and all kinds of things going there. And I remember talking to uh, a Jew there, he really really actually just painted this picture of a a lovely community that's always just doing stuff together as it's kind of ruled by all these festivals. And I think in lots of ways that uh, played a role in defining who they were as a people, uh, bringing people together. But then I also wonder if partly... You cling on to that because because the Jews, even modern-day Jews, most of them, have largely missed the Jewish Messiah. You see, Paul says, when Christ came, all that the Jewish law looked towards found its completion in Christ. All of the food laws, the festivals, the things that commemorate the Passover or uh, the Sabbath, Pointed towards something greater, Jesus, the great Passover lamb, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, the one who is leading a new exodus of God's people. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament points to Christ. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, says to them, to the disciples, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now, if you want to explore this theme a little bit deeper, the entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament actually uh, plays this out. Shows how Jesus is—he's the better temple, the better sacrifice, the better priest, the better prophet. Hebrews, for since the law has but uh, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by these same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying that when your life is based and your approach to God is based around these rituals, you've got to keep doing them every year, constantly. But it can never truly make perfect in the way that Jesus can make you perfect. Jesus, the one in whom all these things pointed towards, has come. You want forgiveness. Come to Jesus, you want atonement. Come to Jesus. You want to find rest? Come to Jesus. And everything that was written in the Old Testament foreshadowed this great Messiah that was coming. And so you see why Paul says, "Well, it's kind of silly to cling onto those signposts, right? Don't hang on to those old signposts. The reality is here. Jesus is here. You know, I imagine it's a bit like going to your island resort holiday. Not that, you know, you've probably been able to do that in the last couple of years. But imagine going away to your beautiful island resort holiday and spending the whole time just flicking through the brochure. Flicking through all the things that the brochure talked about. Instead of going out there and actually experiencing it for yourself. See, don't let anyone enslave you to the laws and rituals that have passed. They're they're the religious things that might make you feel good, that might give you a sense of religious identity, but they're adding things onto the gospel. They're adding things onto Jesus, the one who has completed all these things. The one who is is the shadow that pointed, he is the reality. See, when you have Jesus who is the fulfillment and, and, and he is the fullness of God who has come, well, the law, the law, if you, if you keep obeying the law, well, you're adding things to it. You're adding things to the supreme being in the universe who has dealt completely with our sin. He has triumphed over the powers and authorities. And see, so if you add anything to Christ, well, you're really taking away from him. You see, the legalist adds to Christ's work. It puts all the emphasis on the things that we do not on the things that the Saviour has already done for us. Now, in reality, I don't think many of us are particularly tempted to go back to the Jewish law here. Uh, But, yeah, I think there is a Christian version of it, isn't there? It's the Christian who can happily kind of tick the Christian boxes off. Oh, we'll go back there. Here we go. Uh, We can happily tick off all the the Christian boxes. You know, we can go, well, morally, I'm not sleeping around, I turn up to the Christian events and Easter and Christmas and maybe even Sundays every so often. But like the legalist, your heart's not truly in it. It's all about pretense. You turn up because, well, you feel like ultimately it's your obligation to do. That's just what you do. But the substance behind those things are lacking. Your relationship with Christ has gone cold. Your commitment to Christ's body here is minimal at best because, well, well, you feel like you've ticked the boxes and you've done your thing. But friends, Jesus, who is the reality of all these things, here's the main event. Here's what's got to be central to you. Not doing the Christian things, coming to the one who has done it all for you. Okay, so on one hand, we have the threat of legalism, but on the other hand, he says, watch out. For mysticism, mysticism. Now, I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, you can follow on with uh, these verses here. In verse 18, read on with me in your Bibles. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Now, uh, what's he talking about there? Well, mysticism, uh, mystics, it's the kind of, space in which you put all the emphasis on the ecstatic experiences of God, right? Maybe it's speaking or praying in tongues, for example. Uh, maybe it's the visions and dreams and prophecies and kind of the hyper-spiritual things. Often it actually involves a modified state of consciousness, right? The Hare Krishnas is a kind of sect that you, you chant for hours on end until you enter this like trance-like state. In the past, there have been Christians who have delved into psychedelic drugs to have an experience of God like that. I think the more modern version is the endless worship music session, right? Kind of going back again to my experience growing up. You know, we sung three songs this morning that were great. They were pointing us towards Christ, and it was really helpful to engage my affections. But you know what? That's child's play compared to what some churches do. Yeah, you know, I remember growing up, we would have songs that would go for 30 or 40 minutes until you kind of almost lulled into this kind of trance-like state. And it was a church service that involved visions and things that came directly from God. Now, don't get me wrong, there's actually some good there, the desire to be close to God desire to hear from God, to run away from that kind of dead formalism of my other experience growing up, the kind of thing where you kind of can go up to the traditional church and tick all the boxes, but in truth, you're hardly engaged in it at all. See, the problem is the obsession to have this direct experience of God, God uh, in in a way that often just leaves Christ out altogether. You see, who needs a mediator? Who needs someone to atone for your sin to put you and reconcile you to God? If you can just go and have this hyper-spiritual experience, the experience of the tongues or the the mystical church service. And, you know, in lots of ways, I think that was my experience of the charismatic movement as well. It's largely driven by the experiences and the, the power of the Spirit. But, well, Jesus and the atonement at the cross was, it was honestly, it was like a little footnote down at the bottom of, uh, of the, the form. You see, Paul makes this argument that in Christ all the fullness of deity exists and his fullness is in you too. That means that if you have faith in Christ, you can't get any closer to God than what you already are. That is Christ, the second person in the Trinity. God the Son has entered into the world as a man. He dies on the cross. And you have become united with him when you put your faith in him. You don't get any closer to God than that. See, so through Christ you can have confidence to go and enter into the very throne room of God. There's no need for a mystical or ecstatic experience to bring you closer to God. No drug or trance or elevated music experience can bring you any closer to God than you already are. Now, again, friends, I say that's not to say that there's not some good there in those other traditions. In fact, uh, as I reflect on my charismatic days, there are things that I wish that the real good Bible churches would do more of, that we'd be both serious about the Bible and be able to speak passionately and intimately about our relationship with God. And there are things that absolutely we can learn. But the truth was that in lots of ways... I actually think those churches have departed from Christ. They've departed from the crucified Saviour for, well, this slightly religious version, the ultra-personal God that you can experience through these things. And Paul puts it like this, right? Uh, They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. See, instead of being reliant on the lights and the smokes machines and the pulsating music, That's just just trying to do your spirituality on sugar hits. Instead, Paul says, hey, don't make the emotions and the experience the main thing. They're not bad things. But no, if Christ's death, his resurrection is no longer central, then you're disconnected from the head. So in a sense, if the legalists are trying to add to Christ's work, well, I think the mystics... Well, they almost bypass Christ altogether. All right, let's go on to our last one: asceticism. Right, the last religious philosophy uh, Paul's warning us off is asceticism. It's kind of the practice of of really strict self denial as the measure of spiritual discipline. Verse twenty, read with me says this: "Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though do you still belong to the world? Do you submit to its rules?" Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but actually in church history, there was a time when the super-spiritual Christians, they weren't like the rock stars or the kind of charismatic, uh, super-powered, hyper-spiritual ones. They were the monks and the nuns. See, if you were a serious Christian, you went and joined the monastery. You went and joined the convent. Because it's, those were the places where there were people who swore off their own worldly goods, Right, You actually didn't own anything, really, that was yours. They even went to the extent of forsaking marriage, dedicating their entire lives to God. Not only that, it was often associated with a whole bunch of practices like fasting, uh, self-torture. See, I think in some ways, it's, on one hand, it's incredibly inspiring to see people who would give that up, and on the other hand, severely lacking as well. See, on one hand, it's great. There's the quest for holiness, for separation from the world, a deep awareness of one's sinfulness, a desire not to hold back anything from God. And yet, and yet, to remove ourselves, to be harsh to our bodies, created a whole new kind of slavery. Slavery. You see, with that's the mark of your spirituality, harshness to your body, you're almost trying to impunge the sin out of your body on your own. Well, in some ways, I think you're effectively saying that Christ's body that was broken for you was not enough. It was not enough for your own sinfulness. It was not enough for your holiness. It's a false worship. See, the legalist adds to Christ's work. The mystic bypasses Christ's work. I think the ascetic says, well, Christ's work isn't enough. And I have to fill that up in my own body as I beat it to bear, or I'm harsh and severe to it as I try to turn away and deal with sin that way. Now, let me try and give you an example of this. I mean, just imagine if I said to you, CPE, that we are going to ban the internet from your lives. Right, and all the gamers are like, no! But just imagine we said, hey, we're going to ban that from your lives." Do you reckon that'd be a good thing? Well, I guarantee you, actually, there would be some good that would come out of it, wouldn't there? Less distraction time, less time in the gaming world, less temptations to lust or pornography, online shopping. You know, part of me kind of almost wants to experiment with that. But it doesn't deal with our wayward hearts, does it? That's dealing with the superficial level of us. It's saying that, well, maybe, hey, you know, if we could just refrain from some things in the world, then maybe that would stop polluting us. But that harshness, that kind of strictness on that wouldn't fix our sinful and wayward hearts. Now, if you decided to refrain from the internet for a period of time out of your uh, devotion to Jesus and wanting to, to run from sin, that would be a good thing but for anyone to institute that upon you draws you away from Christ. You see, only Jesus can really do the work in our hearts to shape and mould and change us. Only He, as we understand Him, if we really take to heart His life, His death, His resurrection for us, that actually really brings us truly into that connection with God. Now, in the late 60s to 70s, there was a movement, it was called the the Jesus Movement. Uh, If they kind of look a little bit hippie, it's because they actually were. Uh, It was sort of in the period in which, you know, lots of young people were uh, wanting to depart from mainstream American culture and they were setting up hippie communes all over the place. Well, you know, at the same time that that was happening, there was a whole movement. God was doing some great stuff and saving all kinds of people out of the, both out of the mainstream culture and out of the hippie culture. Right? And so there were people discovering Jesus, they were discovering the Bible, they were uh, creating Christian music. You know, a lot of contemporary Christian music kind of, uh, kind of got founded here in a way because, you know, hymns and traditional music was, was getting replaced with rock and roll. Uh, there was a time, you know, that was a time when just even playing drums in church was considered satanic. Right, so here were these really passionate uh, young uh, kind of people who'd been saved out of these hippie communes, or people who were saved out of drug addiction, but they weren't really accepted by mainline Christian churches. You see, they weren't the clean, upstanding middle-class Christians that the mainline churches expected. They were indie rockers. They were young. They were a bit rough. They were coming out of this hippie movement that had kind of, you know, run away from society. You know, I was hearing this story about uh, one of the members recounting how, uh, how one of the leaders from the mainline churches would say things like, uh, there was, it was a, a leader being interviewed on the radio, and someone asked him, well, what do you think about this Jesus movement? And he sort of had all these rough things to say about them, and really as a put down, he said, you know what, in the end, all they've got is Jesus. <laughs> all they've got is Jesus. As if to say, well, they don't have the churches, they don't have the money, they don't have the power and the influence that uh, us mainline churches have. They don't fit the mould of our Christianity. In fact, really, all these young, passionate, hippie Christians have is Jesus, as though that was a bad thing. And so the movement just took that on. They said, well, actually, that is all that we have, Jesus. We are the Jesus people, we're going to become the Jesus movement. You know, in lots of ways, I think that summarizes so much of what Paul is saying here. If you have nothing else but you had Jesus, would that be enough for you? When the wares of the world want to tempt you away from Jesus, are you able to say, no, Christ is enough for me? When the religious philosophies or the new religious fad comes along, whether it's some sort of legalistic or mystic or ascetic thing comes along, can you turn away from that and go, No, Christ is enough for me? Because, see, if what Paul says about Jesus is true, then Jesus should be enough for us. Because Paul has argued that Jesus is enough because, well, there's no one like Jesus. He can't compare him to any human prophet or teacher. He surpasses any sacrifices, any priests, any temples. He has freed us from the legal requirements of the law because the truth is that Jesus alone is able to make us right with him, with God. So much so that we're now so close to God that we can sit in the throne room of God himself. There's nothing more to add. There is no more sacrifice necessary. There are no more rules to obey you see, we heard before: the legalist adds to Christ's work, the mystic bypasses Christ's work, the ascetic says Christ's work isn't enough. But I think the Christian says, Jesus is enough. I don't need to add anything to the gospel. Jesus is enough. I don't need that mystical experience. Jesus is enough. There is no more sacrifice needed for salvation. I want to sum it up even more simply. Paul's message is Christ is enough. See, this isn't the sort of sermon where, you know, you leave there kind of feeling good or with a list of three things you must do. This is Paul's warning. This is like the defense against the dark arts, you know. This is Paul saying, hey, watch out for these things. You see, what I really love is, uh, particularly in the Reformed tradition, they had this phrase called the ordinary means of grace, right? And in lots of ways, I think that's a good warning for us. It's, it's a word to see for you, hey, don't go chasing after the next big religious fad that's supposed to bring you closer to God. No, no, pursue those ordinary means that God has given us for us to grow in Christ together that we would together grow up into the head as all the joints and the tendons and things connect together and grow us into Christ. See, what that phrase meant is actually um, is saying that actually all that we need to grow as Christians, to grow closer to God, is actually given to us already in Scripture, in prayer, in the church, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. None of these are mystical things. None of these involve extreme acts of asceticism. They're the normal basic things of the Christian life. But if you do them together and you do them well and you do them as you look to Christ, these are the things that will root you and grow you into that flourishing tree, that picture that we've had in the last few weeks. See, in lots of ways, I just think of my life group. We met up yesterday here in the hall Uh, nothing special, we opened the word. We challenged each other to treasure Christ. We confess about those things in which we actually find personally challenging and that we know can draw us away from Christ. And we prayed for each other, encouraging each other to do exactly that, to to keep treasuring Christ. See, it's not inventing a new way to God. It's the body coming together and pointing each other back to Christ, our head. Paul finishes later on in chapter 3, verse 17, if you flick over there, he says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything, doing everything through Christ, in Christ's name, as we do that together. You know, friends, that's the way, that is the path to true maturity, to growth in Christ." Let's pray together in light of that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. Lord, he is our, our king. He is that supreme Lord in the universe, the supreme one in creation, the supreme one in salvation. Father, as we put our trust and our faith in him, Lord, we know that we can get no closer to you than we already are in Christ. Thank you for what he has already done. But Lord, we also pray this morning that you would guard our hearts against the allure, the allure of the mystical, the allure of the ascetic, the allure that maybe in some way Jesus isn't enough and we need something more. In fact, Father, help us to continue to grow together in our love and our affection for Christ. And as we do those ordinary things together, might we, uh, might we indeed grow up together together into Jesus as our head. And Father, we pray that even in those ordinary things might you grow and bless us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.